There's a stat, I believe it was put out by the AHA in, in 2019, around 14% of total expenses of not-for-profit hospitals and health systems, um, total annual expenses were spent on community benefit. Well, welcome back to The Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. I'm Justin Marlowe, and we are, of course, proudly sponsored by MuniPro, Build America Mutual, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy wonk, chicken connoisseur, and uh, just all-around fun and interesting person, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Oh, <laughs> why, thank you. And happy Halloween. We are recording this on a rare Tuesday instead of a Monday. So I get to say that. <laughs> we, yes, an extra spooky uh, discussion of <laughs> public money today. <laughs> if we should be talking about pensions or debt or something that is a little spooky by nature, but we'll, we'll see where we go. <laughs> yeah. So we today we're talking about nonprofit Healthcare, which healthcare in general is whatever it is now, 15, 20% of gross domestic product, obviously a very, very important part of the economy and a very, very important part of all of our communities writ large. The nonprofit space, nonprofit healthcare space in particular, is so important in, in rural areas and academic medical centers and all the other areas where it operates. We don't often think of nonprofit healthcare as a as a public money concern, just because we think of hospitals as hospitals, healthcare systems as healthcare systems, but in fact, they are a major public money concern, particularly at the state and local level. Nonprofit hospital systems, healthcare systems are tax-exempt borrowers. So they're in the municipal bond market with states and cities and counties and school districts and everyone else. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of federal money that passes through states, whether it's through state Medicaid programs or any number of other ways that those pass-throughs happen. So there's state and local public money in the nonprofit healthcare system that way. And that's all to say nothing for just how central a lot of nonprofit health systems are in the communities that they serve, whether it's through charity care, through investments in community health, uh, by being large employers, large parts of local economies. It's just a really, really important part of the landscape of state and local public finance. And one that we, we kind of talk a little bit about at the edges from time to time, but rarely do we do a kind of a deep dive into the sector and its current landscape. So that's what we're going to do today. We're fortunate to have Bobby Bruning from Kaufman Hall, which is an advisory that works in the nonprofit healthcare space here to tell us about all of these big picture as well as some more tactical near-term considerations for the nonprofit sector and, and how it fits in as a public money concern. You know, Liz, we both have for a long time now been been thinking about and writing about nonprofit health systems as a, a part of the public money landscape. Uh, when you think about some of the big issues, the big challenges there, what comes to mind? So I, to be perfectly frank, haven't done tons of writing on uh, specifically nonprofit healthcare. When I think about it, though, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is eds and meds. And, and, and economic development. And I mean, even before I was writing about public finance and was covering local e economic development in Maryland, I mean, that's that's when I heard the phrase, go figure. I was in Baltimore where Johns Hopkins is. <laughs> so, you know, but it, it is a huge not healthcare 
nonprofit healthcare specifically because of all the community work that that entails, it's a huge economic driver. And certainly I know lots of municipalities, cities, towns, states want something like that as part of their, you know, their economic makeup. But then on the other hand, when I think about my email inbox and and notifications on, you know, out, credit outlooks and defaults, I mean, a lot of the negative stuff tends to be in nonprofit healthcare uh, sector tends to have a lot of those those negative outlooks, the the lower rated credits, and so those two things don't quite mesh up. And 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 I think we'll we'll get into that uh, with our with our interview, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more details. Those are it's it's always been this kind of area um, when I think about the economy and economic development, and when I think about public finance and just you know how the fundamentals work. It's been a bit of a mystery, <laughs> you know, in terms of like how does all that match up? So, uh, so but uh, Justin, what are what are some of the things that you've you've thought of too over the years? Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a it does doesn't always sync up when you when you see the sector as part of the municipal part of Muniland, which we generally think of as a a world of strong credits, dedicated revenue streams, essential services, and then you hear about nursing homes and certain nonprofit health systems under severe fiscal stress, including several that have gone away, have been merged, have been taken over, whatever it might be. And I think the other side of that, of course, is that this is just like with states and cities and counties, an enormous sector, lots of variation from place to place. And uh, like I said, it's important to understand some of that detail. We get into understand the landscape at a, at a little bit more granular level, which it's great that we're getting some of that insight with our, our conversation today. I think Consistent with what you were just saying, too, one of the interesting trends to watch over the years has been the fact that the tax exemption that comes with nonprofit health systems is not universally loved. And there have been instances in many places over the years where nonprofit health systems that are, again, major employers, major landowners, occupy large parts of downtown areas and are not necessarily paying property taxes, not necessarily paying sales taxes, have been, in the minds of some local elected officials, a real source of strain. And we saw in Pittsburgh, for instance, a few years ago, a proposal to to enact a local income tax that was meant to be a way to try to extract some revenue from the robust nonprofit health system landscape in Pittsburgh. And you can envision similar kinds of places thinking about, and in some cases, even taking those kinds of actions for exactly the reasons you mentioned, Baltimore, of course, being one of them as well. So it's this kind of delicate dance. It's a little bit like the kind of classic town gown tension that we see with with universities and and the kind of public finance side of that. And as the as we get into a an era of rising interest rates and a little bit more policy uncertainty at the federal level and some of these other stresses. It's going to be interesting to see how the nonprofit healthcare sector responds to those stresses, if it's the same as it's been or if we'll see a shift in a new direction. Well, we're pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Bobby Bruning, who's a vice president at Kaufman Hall and should be noted a, a former student alum of the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Bobby, welcome to uh, the pod. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Liz, for having me. Excited to be here. Very happy to have you here. We, I, we haven't talked a ton about uh, healthcare on this pod yet, occasionally. Um, certainly not the nonprofit healthcare sector specifically. So can you start off just by kind of t- defining for our listeners, what is the nonprofit healthcare sector? What does it entail? Institutions, facilities, that, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess to start there, you know, there are thousands of not-for-profit hospital and healthcare entities across the country. You know, as of as of this year, 
Uh, not-for-profits outnumber for-profits by a factor of about three to one. So mo most health systems in, in the U.S. are not-for-profits, uh, and they're made up of a lot of different entities, from standalone hospitals to large national systems covering large geographies, uh, and they can include many components. Um, some have children's hospitals, specialty care, some even have health plans. So so there's, there's no one-size-fits-all, but there are uh, a lot of not-for-profit health entities out there. And, and what makes them I guess not-for-profit is, is their tax status. Not-for-profit healthcare systems and hospitals qualify as charities, according to the IRS, uh, meaning they're not required to pay taxes, basically, at the federal or state level, sales taxes, property taxes, exempt from all of that. And what comes with that is an expectation to operate according to an identified mission. Things like improving population health, uh, increasing the quality of patient care, or otherwise reinvesting those quote-unquote profits back into the community or into the system itself to continue to improve care. One other item importantly to this podcast, I guess, the uh, tax-exempt status allows a lot of health systems uh, to borrow in the muni debt markets, though some also do borrow in the corporate markets as well. Yeah, you, uh, you had mentioned, uh, Bobby, the that the uh, the profits, quote unquote, that are earned by by nonprofit hospitals, which is also a you know point of contention. Some are now quite profitable, some far less so. Um, and yet, I think when you look at the financial metrics across the entire industry, even though they might be profitable, there's still you know lots of financial stress, lots of just ongoing concerns in this sector. Yeah, what accounts for that? How is it that you can have strong relationship between revenues and expenses, and yet still be considered? a sector that is subject to lots of lots of potential stress at any given moment. It's an issue that the whole sector has been grappling with, particularly since 2020. There are a lot of profitable systems out there. I think the average system over the last several years has, has seen negative profit margins or slightly marginally positive margins. You know, we at Coffin Hall actually track this data on a monthly basis, so can say relatively confidently that, that margins are kind of wonky right now, up and down, trending slightly upward the past few months. And there's no single answer to that question, right? Every hospital and healthcare system faces its own set of challenges. Uh, but I think in general, for the sector, we're seeing a few things permeate and impact margins. I think on the revenue side, you have a sort of price and elasticity of services. Uh, the major components of health system revenues don't adjust freely, as, as you would think. Uh, so, for example, on average, a uh, large portion of system revenue um, are from reimbursement. So on average, 45% uh, of revenue comes from Medicare, 15% comes from Medicaid reimbursement. Uh, and these are both fixed payment streams. You, you don't get to negotiate those rates with CMS or the state. Uh, and those reimbursement levels typically don't cover the total cost of care uh, when they're applied. So that's one issue on the revenue side. You have things like uncompensated care, obviously unreimbursed services, charity care. So that's all non-revenue, but still expense driving factors. Uh, you have unpredictable volume recovery coming out of COVID, which has been all over the place. We've seen generally fewer surgical cases. People are staying in hospitals longer. And then there's, a, there's competition, I think, on the revenue side as well. Traditional competitors and new entrants into the market kind of carving off some of the more profitable sides of the business. And then on the cost side, I think a general trend is we've seen higher costs across the board, particularly in labor and services, supplies, Higher interest rates also, I think, are having an effect. Debt cost, which is the main source of capital for a lot of systems, are higher. And in the last year, lower investment returns, I think, are also having an impact. All of that would uh, kind of suggest 
that this is a what we might call high yield sector uh, or a credit stressed sector. And you'd mentioned a, a couple of factors, Bobby, that contribute to that. Certainly, the the regulatory environment, which seems to be a big challenge. When we think about credit in particular, is it those kinds of regulatory and cost and other sorts of pressures that tend to contribute to this as a what we might call a high yield sector, or there's something else about nonprofit healthcare that keeps it in that credit sector of the muni market? Yeah, I think what we what we just talked about all play a factor into that. I don't know if I would say the sector as a whole uh, should be classified as as a high yield sector. You know, there are certainly low rated and non rated credits uh, that do transactions and deal with investors and things like that. But all three rating agencies currently do have negative outlooks on the sector, which is interesting and hasn't occurred in a long time. But as far as the the delineation of credit, you know, if you look at uh, the 2023 Moody's medians, for example, I think 93% of rated healthcare systems are above investment grade, uh, 68 to 70% are above A level. So, you know, you, you have a pretty good spread across the credit spectrum, really good credits, some not so good credits. You know, in addition to what we talked about is on the risk side of things, metrics that are going to impact those those ratings and credit quality are things like operating performance, obviously, profitability, debt load, volume trends, uh, more and more liquidity is, is a major focus. And that's been a since 2020, a major issue and a finite resource in the healthcare sector and, and in a lot of sectors. And then, you know, strategic growth plans, growth strategy, I think all play into into those credit um, aspects of, of the sector. That's a really good point. So maybe it's high yield in quotes relative to, you know, a regular AA plus rated muni GO, but definitely not high yield in the in the corporate bonds sense of the word or uh, the way that we often use high yield in the in the fixed income markets. Right. And, and fundamentally, you know, these are revenue backed credits for the most part. So if a health system or a hospital can be profitable enough to service its debt uh, over a certain level, I think that's that's the top level consideration. Right. So uh, we've often thought about the the nonprofit health system uh, space as a good candidate for variable rate debt. And certainly that had been the case, I think, for for some time since the Great Recession, certainly before the Great Recession, since the Great Recession, maybe not quite as much as of late, it seems like variable rate debt is a great way to, to manage some of that kind of stress and uncertainty that we were describing before around the kind of a volatile market overall. Looking ahead a little bit, is there an appetite? Are, are we likely to see variable rate debt and, and some of the kind of swap structures that we saw in this space? five, 10 years ago, uh, make it reemerge in a rising interest rate environment? Or are there you know downside risks to that, that uh, your clients and others are thinking about? Yeah, that, I think there are always risks associated with variable rate debt and swaps in particular. I, compared to a typical muni issuer, I think uh, a health system operates much more like a corporate entity. And I think are from a capital structure perspective, right? And I think they're much more willing to expand the types of structures they borrow through and issue variable rate debt a lot. And we've seen that consistently, both when rates are at zero and, and now that rates are, are higher and it, you know variable rate may offer a pretty attractive comparison to high fixed rates right now. Higher rated systems, I think, have a lot more options on the variable rate side. They're, they're able to access more products. Their, their terms are more attractive. Uh, their liquidity profiles often allow them to mitigate risk of variable rate products more often or, or more efficiently. The other thing about variable rate debt is they're very flexible to get out of. A lot of them have very flexible call provisions. So we've seen a lot of systems use that use variable rate debt as a core component of their capital structure in, in all markets. And I think it's case by case. 
I think going forward, that'll continue to be the case. You know, there's a certain percentage that each each health system has that they're comfortable maintaining a floating rate structure in their debt. And and so I think I think it'll continue to be utilized going forward as a pretty attractive cost of capital compared to some other things right now. We talk all the time on this podcast about state and local governments as green borrowers and and the sort of ongoing push to take existing infrastructure, capital assets that state and local governments manage and make it as green as possible. Um, how much of that is happening in the nonprofit healthcare space? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a important topic of conversation, one that comes up quite a bit. I think the sector uh, is dipping its toe into the green bond world. And we actually, you know, kind of in the same realm, we actually worked with the first healthcare system to issue sustainability bonds earlier this year. So yeah, it's it's an attractive, it's an attractive idea. What does it mean? You know, there are varying levels of, of green bond and, and that, that all really comes from the certification level and the level of, of continuing disclosure you're doing. And some of that can be pretty taxing. So you've seen varying degrees of, of green bonds. And there is some benefit uh, from a cost perspective to issue green bonds. You kind of open up another investor base, but I don't think it's it's large enough yet to offset the additional costs of issuing green bonds in every circumstance. In some circumstances, it definitely has been. But I think it'll continue to evolve. It's it's People are very interested in, in, the, in the topic. So we'll see where it goes. It's exciting. You know, you see health systems kind of revamping capital plans to be uh, more green focused with lead certified buildings and kind of on the sustainability side, more programming uh, focused on diversity, equity and inclusion and things like that. And and so I think all those things coming together will continue to open that open that market and, and see more green and sustainability bond issuances uh, in the future. I can imagine it's not difficult for hospitals to make the case on the on the S side of ESG. Yeah. Right. right. Bobby, you mentioned the the pandemic and um since during and and since the pandemic, um we've heard a lot about staffing crises in nonprofit hospitals as as we've heard about it everywhere, but I think particularly all eyes were on hospitals for a very long time. I guess what's going on in that area? How are hospitals managing? Yeah, I think it's in recent months and in the last year, it's improved, but it's been one of the key gating factors impacting the sector. As you would imagine, started started with COVID. A lot of things happened to staffing, people burning out, people dropping out of the workforce. And and similar to to a lot of areas in the country, staffing and, and labor costs have just gone up along with everything else. You know, I think a few reasons for this in healthcare in particular, wage inflation, it's a specialty labor market, right? So you have limited supply and very high demand. Uh, some of that's been filled with with contract labor on the on the hospital side, but that's really expensive, right? So it's not going to help the overall health of the system. The other issue on the labor side for, for not-for-profits is uh, many not-for-profits employ their, their doctors, right? So primary care, ER, anesthesiologists, employing those doctors uh, as a recruitment and access strategy. And there's extra costs associated with that. And that's not something for-profits do. Uh, they don't employ medical doctors as, at the same rate. I think systems are, are working through mitigating some of those labor costs. Consolidation is one thing we've seen, a, a trend that's, that's been ongoing and that you know, scale ha- helps a lot in those, in those instances. Technology is another area. Virtual care blew up during the pandemic. And has stayed around and has eased some of that labor burden. And then you see more, I guess, proactive measures, things like service line rationalization. So health systems try to determine which services are most profitable and which are most costly and and cutting back or adding more here and there. 
And then it, then you've seen cutbacks too, unfortunately, in some instances. And that's uh, that's been a reality the industry has had to face. What what services are most costly? I mean, is anything that would might be surprising to to the average listener? There's there's really more profitable bit segments, I guess. But the in hospital where a patient is staying in in the building is, is generally going to be the most expensive. And uh, as I said, length of stay or average length of stay has has gone straight up since the pandemic. It's think about someone on a ventilator, for example. So you have those patients who are there for the same service, staying for a longer and longer periods of time, and that's that's not tenable. You have things like urgent care and ambulatory services. Those are more profitable. And those are areas where big tech, Google, Amazon are trying to enter. Those are the more profitable, more kind of one and done type services um, that are more attractive. And just to follow up on the the point about employing physicians, just so we're clear. So uh, nonprofit healthcare systems employing physicians as opposed to taking or hiring physicians out of a, a physician management group or or some other third party. That, that's right. There, there's there's ver- there's a degree of vertical integration in not for profits that there is not uh, on for profits and differences, are, you know, depending on the system. But I think not for profits generally have been willing to bring those groups in house and have them be X Y Z health system branded doctors, uh, kind of as a as a marketing strategy, and it's it's, it's worked pretty well in some instances. You know, Bobby, the uh, nonprofit hospitals got a lot of attention with the uh, the ACA, the Accountable Care Act, which you know, really put this question of community benefits front and center. We've talked a little bit already about charity care and the way that, that uh, nonprofit hospitals have kind of traditionally delivered those community benefits. But since ACA, there's been a lot more emphasis on different kinds of community benefits. And certainly from what I've heard, some systems have done that really well, kind of shifting to this newer, broader view that the ACA puts forward and, and some have not. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of broadening notion of community benefits as the ACA puts it forward and what sorts of challenges and opportunities that's presented for nonprofit health systems? Yeah. And, and I'll maybe add a little bit to that. We've also seen, along with the focus on community benefits and increased scrutiny on the tax exempt status of, of not-for-profits in general. And I, you know, I think there are a few additional reasons for the increased focus. And I think some of that is Again, related to what we saw in 20 and 21, you know, there was a lot of funding, a lot of federal funding from CARES Act and FEMA to prop up and or prop up a lot of health systems that were struggling with with volumes and supplies and staff. Uh, so I think additional kind of scrutiny and focus came from that. One other reason I think that that's increased is some health systems and, and hospitals have seen their balance sheets grow uh, very large, as a lot of balance sheets have in 20. In 21, as asset levels uh, went very high, and I think that's raised some some eyebrows of uh, some regulators and, and state authorities in instances. I think some of that criticism is a little bit overblown, and you know, not for profits continue to provide value to their communities immensely. I, I think you know, there's a stat I believe it was put out by the AHA in in 2019 around 14 percent of total expenses of not-for-profit hospitals and health systems, um, total annual expenses were spent on community benefit. And, and some of that is, is charity care, but it also includes things like medical research and health education, direct contributions to, to community groups, unreimbursed services like vaccination sites and free car seats for newborns, things like that. And I guess to really put put a number on it, there, there, there was a study conducted by Ernst & Young uh, I think, again, in, in coordination with the AHA that, that showed in 2019, uh, not-for-profits in aggregate contributed around $110 billion in total benefits to the community. And I, I think the offset or the, the comparison was to what's the benefit of that tax-exempt status and, and the, re- the tax revenue for gone 
from that status. And that was around 12.4 billion. So that's a nine to one ratio of benefit to opportunity costs. And I think, you know, I think that's meaningful. And I, I guess maybe the takeaway is the end of the day, not-for-profits are playing a vital role in their community still, uh, contributing immensely in ways monetary and service-wise. They take the most critically ill patients uh, with the most sophisticated treatments and procedures. Uh, they take any patient, those even those who don't have insurance or means to pay, and they do that 24 hours a day. And that's not something that these new market entrants, big tech players, others like that, they don't have those costly standby ready facilities to do that. They don't have the responsibility to do that, but not-for-profits do. So there's there's massive community benefit uh, being provided by not-for-profits. Um, what's what's the kind of a, a range or just give me, give us a couple of, of examples of community benefits. Are we talking about like, you know, free health clinics or, you know, is there, are there other things? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, there's, there's charity care providing services to people who can't pay there's medical research, which I think is very important, depending on which hospital and health system you're, you're talking about. There's unreimbursed services, as I said, vaccination sites, health fairs, mobile health care, food banks, things related to child care uh, are all examples, I think, of direct community involvement and, and, and improvement. So, Bobby, we're closing in on another major federal election. What are, I guess, maybe going back to the ACA as well, what are the biggest sources of risk there and uncertainty regarding regarding federal policy or, or just, you know, maybe another government shutdown? Yeah, I, I, obviously that that would be a big risk. But it, it's interesting kind of thinking about this one. It's, it's, it's the first time in a while that major healthcare policy hasn't been kind of top line on the ticket heading into heading into the federal election. So it's an interesting time. I, I think there will be a general focus from both sides on lowering healthcare costs. And I know, for example, uh, President Biden has been very focused on this, talking about Medicare caps on prescription drugs, insulin price caps, and things like that. So I think he'll kind of focus on some of those successes in his campaign, assuming he's the nominee. I think mental health care will be a big area of focus for both sides. Uh, expect to see a lot of focus there and the, and the associated spending and, and how that you know, manifests itself uh, through the system. I think federal spending generally, you know, as, as you said, is, is a major risk. Cost cutting seems like it may be coming and that presumably will impact everything, including a very large portion of our economy that, it, that is healthcare focused. Uh, so I, I think that's a huge risk. And then I think demographics are a big are a big factor, a big risk, if you will. You see a whole generation of baby boomers starting to retire, and what that means for the healthcare system. Simultaneously pulling out some some tax revenue from the system at the same time. So I think that's that'll be an ongoing risk that continues to make itself known as we as we go forward here, and probably will be topics in in the in the upcoming elections. Looking at urban uh, nonprofit systems versus rural, are are rural systems more vulnerable to to those risks that you that you outlined? Yeah, I, I would say generally across the board, uh, rural health systems are are more vulnerable for for a lot of reasons. You know, you look at your at your payer base and your you know what comprises your revenue, and I, I think they're always going to be at a little bit of a disadvantage, despite uh, federal programs and and, and different uh, advantages they do have. And so, I, yeah, I think I think those risks will be especially pronounced in rural healthcare, as as you said. Well, thank you so much, Bobby Bruning from Kaufman Hall, for sharing lots of interesting insights on the nonprofit healthcare sector. We really appreciate you giving us some time today on the Public Money Pod. Absolutely, thanks for having me. 
Well, thanks again to Bobby for uh, walking us through the uh, the basics and some intricacies of the the nonprofit healthcare sector. I certainly have a better understanding of kind of the ins and outs of it, and it dovetails nicely with with the piece I've I pulled for this for ripped from the headlines. It's uh, the piece is from Healthcare Dive written by Susanna Vogel, and it's from the last week of October. The headline says, Healthcare Worker Exodus Continues Through 2022, and it's citing a report from Definitive Healthcare. The the big takeaways are that more than 145,000 healthcare providers left the industry from 2021 through 2022, so that's over the course of two years. Uh, Physicians had the highest number of exits, followed by nurse practitioners. In some cases, staffing shortages may lead to decreased quality of care, according to the report, and increased medical errors. However, the report also says that healthcare facilities can mitigate those impacts by consolidating operations or investing in telehealth. A couple more details. It says the staffing shortages are most critical in South Carolina, Maryland, that's where I live, (laughs) Michigan, Delaware, and Virginia, according to the report. And there's some interesting statistics on burnout and a little bit more insight into um, what increased medical errors. So physicians reported the highest level of burnout last year. As of 2019, Susanna reports, burnout cost the industry $4.6 billion in turnover and reduced productivity. The Definitive Healthcare Report also said that 34% of doctors worldwide said medical errors increased when their units were short-staffed. Patient care can also be disrupted, delayed, and the problem is usually worse in rural hospitals. Last detail, in a survey of rural providers that was, cite, was cited in this definitive healthcare report, 27% of respondents said that nurse staffing-related issues led to the suspension of services at their facility. The issues in, in here touch on a lot of the things that we, we just talked about. But I think what, what strikes me most, too, is that I, I see some similarities here between kind of the risks elsewhere in, in, in municipal finance, for example. We've, we've talked about, I've written about the auditor shortage and how that can lead to errors that ultimately then cost money. In hospitals, though, that those errors are far more, more far more significant in terms of you know it's it's money um, in hospitals and and in, in increase in errors can result in um, in a lot more harmful permanent damage. So that that was one of the things that kind of struck me about this though is that th- this first of all this to me is a bit scary in terms of the exodus. Um, it seems like a really really big issue that quite frankly no sector no industry um, who's dealing with this kind of exodus has really solved yet, but Again, consolidation has come up. Technology has come up. Those are things that we hear elsewhere. It seems to me that at, at some point, someone's going to figure out the secret sauce to how to smush all that together into some kind of solution to stop the drain. But what, what were some of the big takeaways for you, Justin, from reading this? Yeah, it's such an interesting piece. And as we've said a couple of times now on this episode, with healthcare, it's different. It's such a huge segment of the of the economy. And I couldn't help as I, as I was Reading this and listening to you summarize it, when you think we put this through the filter of the politics of state budgets, you have to think that there are state budget directors, state Medicaid directors, governors, policy advisors who are very familiar with the kinds of trends that are described in this piece. And no offense to our friends in government auditing and, and some of these other sectors where there's talent shortages and, and major human capital trouble. Those are things that, that need to be addressed. But 
these are things that will probably need to be addressed this coming budget cycle, right? These are the kinds of things that are going to generate a more immediate policy response. And you can't help but then immediately begin to think about if what we're seeing here is the acceleration of some underlying trends. That's been the thing that we've talked a lot about with COVID. COVID didn't necessarily start any trends. It just accelerated trends that were already in motion, like the push toward telemedicine, like the sorting of the sort of skilled labor from the less skilled labor in healthcare generally. All these things, it does raise a bunch of different questions then about whether states ought to be rethinking their investments and where where dollars of public money go in the healthcare sector. You could envision, for instance, big big investments in rural telehealth to to try to you know facilitate some of this some of this trend and take advantage of the opportunity that it presents in rural areas if you're simply not able to staff in-person facilities the way that you'd like to be able to staff them you could envision you know if i'm if i'm a, a university president or the the president or cfo of a public medical school this is a great opportunity to to press the case for more dollars more more residencies better facilities all the things that you need to be able to attract and re- retain a high quality skilled healthcare labor force in your state and those are areas where there's been frankly some divestment as of late and so you could see that as a as something that comes out of this like there's so many different ways that so many different policy levers and so many different budget allocations and just overall budget investments at the state and local level that are in the healthcare sector that this of any other trend that's floating around out there seems like something that could move budget policy in a big way and in a real hurry. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Pod.